99th episode is back for another deep dive look into one of the volumes of Sandman. This time, take a journey through the waking world with us as we talk about brief lives. You have coffee, then. Better than coffee. It's more coffee. That's true. But but speaking of coffee, <clears throat> whoa. Okay, that's false start. We got some strong coffee. Yeah. Speaking of coffee, we are returning to the pages of Sandman, and we will be enjoying some coffee along with the Turkish coffee that our characters enjoy later in this series. That was a rough segue, but here we go. Hey, <laughs> good morning, Paul. How are you? I'm good. Happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day to you. Yeah, so when, when people listen to this at Christmas time, they'll be like, oh, I'm behind. <laughs> and I was like, no, actually, they are. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Cool. Well, yeah, we are talking about Sandman again, this time the Brief Lives storyline. And this ran from issues 41 to 49 and the original published issues. And in this story, Dream and Delirium go on a journey to find their lost brother, who isn't really lost, more like he's journeyed off on his own. So I messaged you last night, Paul, and I told you that this is my favorite Sandman story, but also I really don't know why. And that's why I'm really looking forward to talking about this one. This is, and part of this goes back to the fact that this is the storyline that was coming out when I first started reading Sandman back when I was 13 years old or so. And I think Sandman blew my young mind in terms of realizing that comics could be so much more and so much different than what I was used to at that point in my life, having only really read X-Men and Wolverine and Valiant comics. So going from fairly standard superhero stories to reading Sandman was a really big eye-opener for me that there's so much more to comics possible. And this story is part of that experience so i don't know how much of my enjoyment of this story is nostalgia for the story and how much of it is because i just really love the story and so i'm really interested in in digging into that because i think so the first issue i ever bought of Sandman, I think was issue 47, which is towards the end of this story. So I missed all the like random journey part of the story when I started reading Sandman and I got right to the finding destruction and meeting up with him and their conversation and all the fallout of that. And when I first went back and read the whole like journey through the world to find destruction part i was a little like mm, oh man it's, it's kind of dragging on kind of boring to me but this time i got a lot more enjoyment out of it um 
what did you think of this story? Where where are you coming from with this story? I liked it a lot. Uh, so, I mean, we've talked about this before, but my Sandman reading, I didn't start reading comics until I was an adult, and I had read Watchmen, and then I only read that because my wife kind of convinced me to. I'd read a little bit of comics before that I had one little foray into Kevin Smith comics before that because I got really into Kevin Smith uh, like as I was getting out of high school and then quickly ran out of interest there. So my wife convinced me to read Watchmen and then I liked it. It was, I mean, that showed me that comics could be different than, you know, kind of like what you were saying, it could be different than what, what you thought they were. And, um, you know, with Watchmen, people often say that's a terrible first comic to recommend to people. But for me, it was perfect because I was heavily reading literature and that had a much meatier, you know, backbone to it. Anyway, so after that, I wanted to read something else, but I didn't want to read superhero comics. And that's how I got into Sandman, as I recalled a handful of years before that, a friend of mine getting Sandman comics. And it definitely didn't, you know, I, I wasn't interested in them at that time. But then thinking back, I was like, oh, well, I trust my friend's taste and stuff. And it definitely didn't strike me as typical comic fare. So I started picking up the trades and reading it that way. And one thing that's cool about reading this story now is I know I read it before, but everything I'm rereading, it's been over 10 years, except the first couple of trades worth of material, basically. Because I've had a couple of times trying to like get into doing a full reread of Sandman before, and I would read, you know, maybe two or three trades and then stop again. And then, so I kind of kept on re-reading re those first few things. So this one, I vaguely remembered things about it, but very, very vague, like kind of like vaguely remembering the basic structure of the volume of it rather than remembering any details at all about it. So like I remembered they were trying to find destruction. I remembered at the beginning Delirium visiting her different siblings trying to find somebody to help her. And that's pretty much it. Like that's the extent of what I remembered. So this is the first one out of any of the stories we've read that I've really, truly felt like I don't know what's happening next in this. I liked it. Um, it's hard for me to say how I liked it in, you know, in comparison to other stories necessarily. There's still some, obviously, that I haven't reread. Um, but this one definitely stands out to me as I enjoyed the experience of reading this. And some of them felt like a slog at times uh, until I got rolling. And then they were, you know, more, you know, more enticing. And this one, it didn't. It didn't have like some of the, some of the stories had stuff on the surface that made it really easy to engage with, you know, like, um, what was it? The uh, doll's house. It was at the serial killer one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like that one, there's a lot of, uh, of story going on in it that like really quickly draws you in like, oh man, what's going to happen next? You know, some of the stories are less substance and just kind of more this stuff on top, you know, like, especially some of the, like the one shot little stories about fairies and about, you know, different stuff like that. Like those are kind of like pretty to look at. And then they kind of feel like there's not that much in the middle, but then when you dig deeper, you find more substance. And this one I feel like is just, it's a good story. It's not a bunch of hidden context or anything. I think what makes this one feel good is you've gotten to know some of the, the endless siblings more. And in this one, you're getting to know some of the ones that you didn't really know as much either at all or as you thought you did. Like, we might have thought we knew Delirium more. And through this, we see 
her being like stepping beyond the capabilities we see her normally display. We also see some of what she was before she was delirium. So we also learn things like the endless have actually changed their, you know, their beings over time. Um, plus we get to meet destruction in this and we get to, to know a little bit more about him. I feel like we saw him at least a little bit in, in another story, right? Yeah. We we've seen him before. I think he showed up in a flashback to some big family dinner, also, yeah. he made an appearance in the Sandman special, the Song of Orpheus. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, and this is kind of growing off of that a little bit. Like this is that—that's where the story starts off. Basically, is relating back to that, uh, but still, like we don't know him at all. Like we didn't, you know, those little tidbits were just, just you know, little snapshots. And in this one, that gets expanded on a lot. And you get just fun stuff in it, like he has a talking dog, <laughs> you know, he's, he's trying to be, uh, uh, creative in all these different ways. And his dog just talks crap the whole time. You know? Yeah. Because he, he, he also kind of sucks at it. Yeah. <laughs> Which is funny. <laughs> yeah. So it's, there are just so many elements to this that one feel different than anything we've gotten in Sandman before. And two, like, I think that when you get invested in any series and for you, your experience was different where you jumped in at this point. But for anybody that had read it up to this point, when you have characters that you've had around that whole time and then suddenly you see them in a in a different light, not because they're changed, but because they're more revealed or more fleshed out, that feels like a moment you didn't think that you would get. It's like you kind of you feel like you know what you have already once you're over 40 issues into a story. And when suddenly you get more than you thought you could get, like it, it just like if you like what you're reading, that feels like a gift, you know? Yeah, this is definitely the most plot-heavy, I think, of any of the recent storylines, at least. This is, like, as plot-heavy as, you were saying, a, a doll's house, yeah. or even the the first volume. This may be as plot-heavy as that first volume, where it's basically Sandman going around trying to recollect all of his items that were lost after breaking yeah. out of of prison this because really we see morpheus do more in this story than in almost any story since then in terms of how active he is and how active all of the endless are because they've kind of taken a back seat in a lot of ways to recent sandman stories because we've had all of the the one shots then we had a game of you, which there's not a whole lot of Morpheus in that. He kind of just shows up at the end and is like, Hey, what you doing in dream here? What's up with that? <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, um, so it, it, it is very different in that way from everything that's come before. I'm, I'm not sure if it's better to kind of march through this plop, beat by plot beat or whether it's better to just kind of jump around and kind of tackle it um, section by section. I, I think it maybe in a broad way, the first couple issues kind of like set the stage for the story. And the first one is all delirium and her basically going around and trying to um, recruit people to search for her brother and she's kind of looks like a punk kid out on the street living on the streets and she ends up in this like S&M club 
she thinks she finds her sister death, but it's just some lady dressed up as a goth and finally ends up in Desire's domain and talks to them. And here's actually, uh, the story seems to go out of the way to point out that Desire has nothing to do with the events of this story. And Desire is even telling Delirium, look, don't go after your brother. And it's kind of a joke where, you know, Delirium realizes, wait, what do you mean? Why are you telling me not to want something? Like, that's the opposite of what you're supposed to do. Because this, this seems like the type of thing that could be all of another one of Desire's machinations. But they really seem to go out of their way to say, no, this... This is not Desire's doing it all. This is all just events unfolding without Desire's influence one bit. And do you buy that? I think I do. But I just wanted to check in on that point. Yeah, uh, especially with when you get to the end of it. I mean, Desire flat out says that it wasn't her or them, I guess I should say. And of course they can be disingenuous, but the way they present it, makes it feel pretty clear that it's not that way. Um, yeah. Cause I mean, throughout it has been obvious that she wants to make Morpheus fall and now she has the opportunity and she doesn't even want to take it. Mm-hmm. So it's like, if she had set it up, she'd be, you know, getting to the end, like my plan worked, let's take the sucker down. And instead she, she knows this is just, you know, this brings about bad things. Mm hmm. And it's funny because it's like she wanted bad things. They wanted bad things. But yeah, and then, then when the bad things happen, it's like you kind of realize maybe you didn't want what you asked for. That's a very desire type of thing, right? <laughs> it's it, like it, desire fell, like desire got burned by desire, basically, is kind of what it feels like. Yeah, and it's an interesting, real, real point that desire often isn't it's usually a temporary thing desires often something that people feel in the moment not like a long-term wanting you know it's it's more of a heat of the moment passion type of wanting and i think when before desire always said ah i'm gonna kill him i'm gonna bring the kindly one down on his head that they were really speaking in that heat of the moment and now that it's not the heat of the moment, they're kind of like, oh, crap, this sucks. <laughs> so that that's pretty interesting. And we also see despair in the first issue. And I think we see her domain a whole lot more. And she remembers her brother. And it's just kind of this very creepy, unsettling look back at, at the plague era and stuff. And... So, like, just in this first issue, we see four of the Endless, with the, if you include that flashback, with Destruction, which is kind of more than we've seen of almost all of these characters, except maybe Desire, because Desire played a pretty strong role in A Doll's House. And then we get Mopey Dream, who's... Uh, so, in in the last few conversations we've had, or I, I guess it's really just the last one. There was a series of stories where it mentioned the oh, a random like love affair that Dream mm-hmm. was having. 
and how he was all happy and walking through the woods and stuff with his newfound love and blah, 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 blah. And here, the beginning of this story is basically the fallout of that. When whoever this person was, Dream realizes, says, oh, she no longer loves me, and he's all mopey and down. And um, it's interesting because they we never find out who this person was. I think it's kind of a mystery that was never really meant to be a mystery, you know, because I think what the story is telling us is it doesn't really matter who it was. It's more because the real story there, there's no story about who it was. The story is about the fallout of it and where it leaves dream. But do you have any guesses of who it is? I don't have any guesses, but uh, this is why I always love us talking about this. I never, I didn't take the time to think about this that much until talking about it now. But uh, like you were saying, the, who it is doesn't matter. It's showing Dream's reaction. And just like we just talked about how Desire kind of fell into their own trap of desiring something, but then once they got, it, got what they desired, they didn't necessarily want it. And Dream... And we think about what, what dreams are. It's like dreams are kind of like a subconscious, like, I want to say desire for something, but it's it's not quite that. It's like a subconscious, um, you know, pursuit of something that feels good. Yeah. Wants and thoughts and stuff but, like that. And just yeah. like with desire, when you actually get it, it's not as easy as that. You know, it's like we dream about falling in love. I mean, that's basically what Morpheus is doing here. He dreams about falling in love. He falls in love. But love is is work once you actually have it. Like love, love isn't this dreamy story that it is before it's actually attained. You know, love takes constant work. It's hard, and if you don't put the work into it, and like we already know, dream is selfish. So if if you're selfish, love's not going to last. And he just keeps on repeatedly burning himself with that same thing because he hasn't changed. You know, he's just living his dream, and. If all you do is dream about love, then when you actually have it, eventually what it is doesn't match that that you know ideal dream that you have of it before it's there. Mm-hmm. So, like already in just this very first issue, we have well, I guess not in the first issue in the whole story arc, we have two of of the endless that we've seen plenty kind of re- revealed both sides of you know. This is the function they serve to make you want this thing, whether it be desire or dreaming about what you can obtain. But then when you actually obtain the thing, you don't feel the same way as you did about it, you know, and, and it's, it's not the same result. It takes work to make those things continue to be good. And that's not part of who they are. They're not there to, you know, dream isn't there to, to make you maintain your dream. Dream is there just to make you dream. And, you know, desire is not there to make you, do the best with when you get what you desire. Desire just makes you want things. And kind of the difference between the two, I think, is that desire tends to manipulate the the kind of negative aspects of of wanting something by, you know, like desire is a lot about making you want something that's not good for you. Mm-hmm. And dream is more about, um, you know, like a more of a, a positive aspirational quality, you know, dream can help you get through bad things. And, you know, I mean, he made the point when he went to hell that without dream, what does hell matter? Cause if you can't dream of not suffering, then you just get used to the suffering basically. Like you have to, 
So like they, they do different things, but it's so much more in the same vein than I think you, you know, we would have thought about before. It's like, they're kind of pointing in, in different directions about how they go about things. But then in the end, like they also, there's, they have no substance that helps once you get the thing. Mm-hmm. Though I do think that we do see some progression here in dream considering looking back at how he dealt with Nala. Uh, was it not? No, not Nala. Nala's the little elf. Uh, Nadia? Is that his, his... Yeah, I believe that's right. Yeah. Basically, he said, he said, no, you okay. You're going to spend eternal damnation in hell because you wouldn't be my girlfriend. Yeah. And then moving on from that to Calliope... It ended badly, but he he didn't, you know, damn her to hell. <laughs> and but they had a, a falling out, and a, like I never want to see you again. To the point where even when she's a captive, she didn't want his help because of that. So in in this case, he's letting um, a relationship go and just feeling bad for himself, which in a way is a real improvement for him from how he seems to have handled things in the past. So in in a lot of ways, he does seem like he's kind of more internalizing his reactions to being spurned by others rather than taking like external actions and punishing people for not doing what he wants, which I think is a, a bit of a change now. So I, I, I do, I think it's the type of thing where he is changing and I think we're supposed to see that, but that he isn't even really aware that he has changed. And I think Destruction points that out yeah. later on in the series that, like, hey, you actually look like you've changed quite a bit. And he says, no, I don't think so. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He never sees the change. But it's the same thing with Desire, too. Desire, at the end of the story, has the opportunity that they have always wanted to be able to bring down the kindly ones on on Dream. But once they have the opportunity, they realize the actual results of what will happen if that happens. They also realize that getting what they wanted didn't feel like they thought it would. You know, they're, they're basically experiencing what they constantly make other people experience. In both cases, like, they're, they're, there is change in them and their characters, but still their functions are what I was just saying. Desire's function has nothing to do with once you obtain what you desire. Dream's function has nothing to do with what you do once you obtain what you dreamt about, you know, it's like they get you there and then even they don't know, like even they're learning how to handle it. And, you know, you and I are, are, you know, ballpark 40 years old. They are much, much older than us and they are much, much more regressed than us in their ability to deal with these things. So I don't think we should give them too much credit in their ability to, uh, you know, to deal with a breakup. Yeah. Um, but like in this series, this is what, what makes you feel more connected to them over time is like, you see them growing more human in how they respond to some things. They're learning from things and that makes it relatable. If they were just, you know, if they were just a formula, if they were just, this is what they do. Every time dream gets spurned by a love interest, he casts them into some kind of, you know, endless punishment. You wouldn't like, how do, how do you how do you relate to that? There's no way to relate to that unless you're a psychopath. So by seeing them gradually change, like that, that's what we can relate to. There's you know there's a human element in that. Like as as people, like 
the experiences we have have to change us. And whether we change, you know, if we move in a positive direction or a negative direction, we still have to move. You can't go through experiences and not be changed by them at all, whether they're good experiences or bad experiences or anything. That's one of the things I think that makes Sandman successful for such a long run is there there is gradual change. And it's not like they just, Sandman is the same forever. And they're like, okay, we got to give them some change so that way people get excited again. And then there's this big drastic change. And you think about a lot of superhero comics. Sometimes they do really good at that, but sometimes the superhero is just just like a flat surface level character. And then all of a sudden they're like, okay, we need to give more depth. And then something crazy happens. Like, you know, their, their fiance gets killed while they're trying to save them, you know? And yeah, it's too drastic. And a lot of drastic stuff happens in Sandman, but their change over time isn't a response to drastic things. It's actually a response to much more normal things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I do like that about this is, is seeing these, these subtle changes and noticing it because I don't think seeing these really subtle changes is something I would have picked up on a first read. This is definitely, it's like something that requires um, a rereading for me to be a little more aware of. So after this though, so Sandman decides, okay, well I'll, I'll go with you delirium and we'll go search through the world and try to find our brother, even though he doesn't really mean it. And just to kind of take his mind off things. Uh, and then we, we get in the, the next issue, it kind of, the it's dream and delirium starting their journey and talking to an old friend of his who gets them transportation in the waking world. But also we get this introduction to this idea that there are these people that have been alive for very long times on this world for whatever reason, and that they are just kind of there among us. And it's, it's kind of a, a new idea for Sandman, this idea of it's basically they're all all these eternal warriors, <laughs> you know, around. And then one of them, basically, he's just like a, a doofus lawyer guy ends up dying. And he has this conversation with Dream about, man, is it's already over? And not Dream, death. Yeah, yeah. Death basically is like, yep, sorry. And then also later in the issue, we see another person, Etain, her apartment explodes basically from a gas leak and we're going to find out that basically these are traps left by destruction that destruction kind of rigged up an autoimmune system so to speak or auto defense system to go after anyone that is trying to find him and that is this like mechanism that is working against dream and delirium this whole time you know, you asked about like what are the connections I, I may you may have missed in this, but I don't think there are a lot. Like all these characters, these are for the most part, these are characters we've seen for the first time in this story. Like the list of people that Delirium has, she has like that envelope where she writes down all those names of people they want to go after. Th- these are all just brand new people that we've never seen before. So there's not like a, a lot of, oh man, this person was in a, a minor character in this story back you know 20 issues ago, like that sort of thing, like uh, often happens in Sandman. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's what I was expecting more of is, uh, oh yeah, this was referenced here. And I usually don't get those cause I don't reread stuff enough. 
and you usually point them out. I'm like, oh. Yeah. So a couple things I want to point out in, in issues, kind of two, as I flip through issues two and three as we're talking about, which is kind of up to the point we're talking about. Um, one is at the beginning of issue two, where it's still Dream being mopey. We see Merv Pumpkinhead, who I just, I love how he looks, by the way. Um, is one of my visually favorite characters. Mm-hmm. But then we see Nala there, and I was just thinking about Nala, and there's a panel on this that I'm going to mention in a second. So Nala, when we first see her, she's um, she has, like, the glamour or whatnot, so she's, you know, much more beautiful than fairies actually are, we find out, when Dream makes her stop pretending, basically, you know, remove the glamour. Mm-hmm. And every time you see her, you know, after that point, she looks like she feels exposed and nervous and uneasy, you know, and like part of it is she was thrown from her fairy world into now she's basically like a servant in the dream. But then like she doesn't have this like false veneer to hide behind anymore. So she just like she seems skittish kind of. And while she's talking with pumpkin head and is pouring out, she's looking through the window and the window's all distorted by the rain. That image has always struck me because it's it's her image distorted again. And it's almost like she goes from feeling like nervous and skittish. And you see her in that. And it just like, she seems more solid there than you're used to seeing her. Like, you know, like you're seeing her differently and it just makes her feel different. And that just struck me as interesting. Yeah. Um, also, a uh, one, one ish thing that comes up there is she's wearing a necklace that was given to her by whoever this lady was that dream had his affair with. And Lucian says, hey, uh, don't let the master see that. You know, you can keep it, but I don't want to see that out because it's going to remind him of her and it's going to be bad. <laughs> so um, and then that comes back later in the, in the series when he does see her wearing it and he calls it out specifically and he says, no, it's it's nice. You keep it, you know, it, yeah, it. Uh, it's a, a little thing that shows how he changed and grew just from this, uh, the events of this story also. Yeah. Which, I mean, this, this is, I think this story really is, I think the turning point, this is the point of no return for this series where everything that happens after this is a direct result of the, the events and the fallout of this this story, I think that this this story really sets up everything that the whole last third of the series is about, and I think we'll get to that really when we get to like the last third of this story when they actually meet up with destruction and he meets up with his son um, Orpheus again. And the next thing that I want that stood out to me here, so we get to the part you mentioned the the lame lawyer guy who dies. And then later on we find out as his son is going through his stuff, he's finding all these things that point to his dad being a very different person than he thought he was. And the son is upset. Like, you know, cause I mean, most things don't point to the best things he finds, you know, sacks that he are full of what he assumes are drugs and like all these different things. And, um, you know, we have more insight into who his dad was. Cause we already know that he's somebody who's lived for, you know, centuries essentially. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so he's, you know, my dad was, was fake. Like my dad was all these other things and he's upset about it. But like with us knowing kind of more of the truth than he does, we know that his dad couldn't have told him all those things cause they couldn't be under understood, you know? 
So it's like we live these these lives that as as we get older, the people, you know, our, our children, our grandchildren, whoever, you know, we're connecting with as we get older, like they're not going to be able to understand all the things that we have done or lived through because they didn't live it. You know, it's like you can't understand those things because I tell you what they are. And I think that that part of the story, too, like a lot a lot of this overall story is kind of revealing that there's there's more to to. To, to people than what we think, whether it be dream or, or desire or, you know, this lawyer guy hmm. and things don't work the way that we think they do, you know, and, and this lawyer guy's son is upset because things weren't the way that he thought they were, you know, and that, and that relates a lot to kind of what desire, particularly, I think in this one realizes at the end is that thing, you know, things aren't always what we, we think they should be like, before his son finds all this stuff, he just thinks his dad is lame. And now instead of like being like, oh, my dad's cool. Look at all this stuff. Like his reality is just blown apart. So then it's like, my dad must be bad. It's like everything has to stay in the bad realm because at no point was he trying to be understanding. If he understood more of who his dad was in the era of the life that he was his dad, then he wouldn't have thought his dad was just lame. You know, it's like in, he would have known more about his dad because he would have been trying to. Yeah, I think about that in my life and, um, you know, I, I know a good amount about my dad. I'm sure there's a lot of stuff that I don't know. Uh, and then recently with, um, you know, my dad's dad passing away, which is quite a few years ago now, uh, and my grandma passing away and, um, you know, different family members and being able to have the opportunity to sit down with my dad as an adult and ask questions to put the pieces together of what I've just known growing up in my life with, you know, who my grandma was and, you know, who my grandpa was and what my dad's life was like, there's a lot more to it. And it would be easy for me to look at my dad, how he is now and look at that snapshot and then be judgmental about, you know, whether, I mean, one, is he interesting or is he boring? And two, like, are the choices he make good or bad? And, um, especially like right now with how everything is politically, like, I, th I think there's, there tends to be a lot of divide between our generation and our parents' generation and how they think about how things should be without like trying to understand who the person is. Like, you're not going to get anywhere with that. Like I found out things about my dad and I've known some of these things for a long time, but like when he was uh, a teenager, young adult, he was almost killed by a serial killer. He actually like worked with this guy who offered him a ride home and my dad didn't accept and he, that guy ended up picking up a couple of teenagers on the side of the road and killing them. Holy and my dad crap. had, yeah. And my dad had to go and testify at the trial. Like that's a fact that I've known for years, but like when you, you think of things like that and you have to add those details into the overall picture you're trying to make, it changes it. Cause you have to think about like, how do all these things that this person has lived through affect how they think about things? And it'd be easy now to be like, Oh, well, you know, my dad's boring. You know, my dad casually follows sports, you know, and like that's our big, probably our biggest like shared interest is sports. But he's not as into sports as I am. He doesn't have any other like major hobbies. Like basically my dad at this point in his life is happy, feeling comfortable. And everything else is kind of peripheral to that. He's worked his whole life to be comfortable because he grew up poor. He grew up having to take care of himself. He grew up with a lot of turmoil. Um, a lot of crazy stuff happened to him when he was young. You know, he didn't have parental support his you know his parents were very flawed people and but it you don't know all those things so it's like i didn't grow up knowing how much of a mess my grandma was when she was you know supposed to be a responsible parent 
And my grandma was just my grandma, and I never had to think of her that way, you know? So this guy, to me, represents so much that when you look at how his story plays out after dying, that we should look at that and, you know, see more than just like, oh, this is crazy, but like, see that, you know, his son is in, is now having his own turmoil because he can't reconcile all these things. And if we look at that and, and learn from the example of that, it should remind us that we should be more aware now that everybody that we assume everything that we, you know, we assume they are what we think they are. They aren't. There's more to them than that. We're all more complicated than that. And, you know, we always think about ourselves that way. Like, well, you know, we're so unique and special and, you know, we have more... it's like everybody has has not the same specific things, but everybody has the same types of things going on with them. You know, none of us are special in that we're the only ones that have experiences. We're all unique in that our experiences are specific to us. Mm-hmm. I think that that's a, a very big piece of the story that or it's a very big thing that isn't a very big piece of the story, essentially. But I think that that's why this whole story here is a lot about learning to see that there's more to things than we think. Interesting. Okay. That's, that's a, a, you put your finger on something here that really made something click for me, which is this idea that it's uh, something that isn't a big part of the story, but is a big part of like the undercurrent underneath the story. And I think that that there's a lot of stuff like that in this story where on the surface, it mostly seems like plot, and but then when you kind of look beyond the plot to what the plot reveals, there's a lot of stuff like that. Because like, I think one of the things that stood out to me is that this story kind of seems to be a reflection or an investigation into the way that people choose to live their life. And the things that happen to people in in their life and how all lives in a way are the same, even when they're short versus when they're last an eternity, that there's these similar currents to them, similar things happen, things people grow, they change, they have pasts that they don't talk about, which kind of gets to your point and gets to like, you know, the lawyer, Bernie K. Pax, and also gets to the dancing woman where you, she was the God Ishtar, I think. Mm -hmm. And, but now she just like works in a, a, a strip club and it's, she has this whole history and past that is just hidden and that she doesn't bring up and is largely just never really comes up as part of what their their current life is and so and so that really kind of stood out to me and then you know at the very end of it i think that destruction really puts the punctuation on on all of this with the notion that we are the ones who get to decide what our life is you and nobody else and that if if we don't just choose what our life is going to be actively then we're just going to passively end up as something and we we may not know what and so you know that's that's kind of what i see destruction is pointing out that look i I've, I've made an active choice 
about who I am and what I'm going to do. And that's why I walked away from this because I had that choice and I didn't want to do the thing that I was quote unquote supposed to do. And I realized that, you know, it really, it was okay. You know, I can, if, if I don't do that thing, the world's going to go on, everything will be okay. The, everything will continue to turn and that is just fine. And so that kind of, after the story investigates all these different ways that people lead their life, I think destruction puts that punctuation on it, basically saying there are so many ways that you can live your life and you get to decide which of those you want it to be. Yeah, I'll I'll talk more about the the dancer when we get to her. Uh, I'll put a pin in that one. Um, Maybe we should just go there now because we're otherwise we're not going to get through this thing and we're going to talk for three hours. First, that's yeah. what I'm saying. Like, we'll, we'll actually we'll we'll move through the volume of this very quickly at this point because we we've, we've already kind of crossed over a lot of it. Um, and I just kind of the point I was going to just say slipped my mind a little bit. So, um, I'm looking at the the part where I'm the the guy that turns into a bear. I love oh, this yeah. part. Because he's just like, nah, man, screw this. I'm turning into a bear. I'm not dealing with this stuff. Like, he, he sees <laughs> yeah. the danger. And I love that he does this. He turns into a bear. It's like, you read this part, it's only, like, a couple pages. It's four pages. And this guy turns into a bear. And you're like, well, that was weird. You move on. Then later on, they're like, oh, yeah, we can't find him. He's probably a bear somewhere. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And everyone's like, oh, oh rats. <laughs> Too <Yeah>. bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think that's great. And like kind of going through, you know, they 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 call on this one friend to help them with the travel. They have this woman that is, you know, his employee that's helping them. She ends up dying because of uh destructions, fail safes that he has in place. But you know, we kind of move on from that quickly. I don't think there's a lot more to touch on there. That's more plot. You get some flashbacks to destruction. And then, then we get into we were just like the the big the the story with the dancer is a a bigger section of it I think than than pretty much any single thing in this. Yeah, it gets a whole issue yeah. to itself. Yeah, and this this was one when I read this I was like I don't remember this at all. And this this part of the story I think is really interesting too because it shows you know this like first of all we're kind of misdirected and we think that um, the uh, character that survives is going to be the central part because she starts off as the main focus, but then she's peripheral to the dancer who is, you know, the, the God Ishtar you said. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And with that, we see, so she kind of like the lawyer guy is how do I live in this world? I have now and with the lawyer guy, we see the sun kind of unveil all these things that were hidden in his past and, you know, all these passports and drugs and all these things to point to illicit things that throughout his life may have been, less awful as they seemed, right? Like, you know, some of those things, I mean, there, there, there are periods in history where it's like the right thing to do to protect yourself was to viciously take whatever you needed. Right. And stuff, you know, there's like lots of different times in history where things that now we would judge as being awful, awful things to do. were just the way life was with, uh, with Ishtar, we see her having to restrain herself because if she actually lived up fully to who she was, it would be destructive to everybody around her. So she has this existence where she's subduing herself to be able to get just a taste of what kind of keeps her alive. Mm -hmm. And at the end of it, we see her just be like, screw this and go out in a blaze of glory. And 
she kills everybody, not big because she's purposefully killing them, but because she is just screw it. I'm going to fully be me and it's going to be destructive to everybody. And, and everybody doesn't realize what they really are asking for with things, you know, like, so you have all these men that are there, you know, to see naked girls dance and they don't realize the glory of what that can be. You know, when she, she tells stories of, you know, what it was like in her, in her prime when she like was full on God mode. And like, I find that like that story very interesting. You know, it's like she has to be subdued to live and she's not unhappy with it. You know, oftentimes if we, you know, we think if we're not like living fully who we are, we're unhappy, but you know, with any of us, just like with the, the lawyer guy it was the same thing. Like he's done all these crazy things where he had so much more power, but to have a happy life now, he knows it's better to pretend to just be a boring lawyer and to have a family and to enjoy his family, even if his son doesn't respect what he is and what he does, you know? Have you seen the movie Nobody? No, I haven't. It's a good movie. Bob Odenkirk, I believe the actor's name is. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. He plays a character that in the beginning of the movie just seems like a boring guy, you know? It's like he, his, his son thinks he's kind of lame. His wife isn't giving him any attention. Uh, they have a sequence at the beginning of the movie that shows that every day, like just these mundane things happen. He constantly misses the trash truck. And every day his wife takes the last of the coffee and doesn't even notice it. And then they get robbed. And you kind of get a sense just with his actions that he knows more than you think he does, but he restrains himself. His son ends up getting punched in the face and gets hurt. Then after that, like his, you know, son thinks he's even, you know, just lamer of a person. Then finally he loses it one day and he starts being who he really is. Um, which is somebody who's very, very good with violence and, you know, very good at handling those kind of situations. You know, it turns into a full action movie then, which is what you expect going in and you get this kind of, kind of slow start to it. But it's like that. He like to have a happy life of just having a family, he has to restrain in all the things that he could do. And if he crosses that line, then it's changed. And then the whole movie after that point is changed because once he crosses that line and, you know, is violent towards people who deserve the violence, then it unleashes this whole series of events. And it's like, mm-hmm. that's, that's what the, the whole, you know, Ishtar story is. And I really liked that one. Yeah. Why don't we uh, kind of jump to the last little bit of this? Cause I'm just worried about like time wise. Um, so after this, Morpheus basically says, nah, I'm done. And Delirium gets all angry. And, um, but then he, he kind of rethinks about it and eventually goes and he talks to Bast, the cat lady. And this is something from, this actually does go back to the, uh, uh, Seasons of Mist. Because Bast was one of the delegates that was trying to um, ask for the keys to hell. And her offer was that, well, I know where your lost brother is. And so that's why uh, Sandman goes to Bast now to try to get that information from her. And she basically says, yeah, I actually don't really know. (laughs) I was just kind of (laughs) trying to BS my way into it. (laughs) And I would have figured it out later. Um she basically sets him on the way and says, well, look, I, I may not know where he is, but I have an idea where you could find somebody who does. 
And so then Sandman goes back and talks to Delirium and says, okay, let's, let's go ahead and, and do this. And then uh, that really is what takes us to the end sequence of this, which is that Dream goes, talks to Orpheus, finds out the information of his brother, goes, they talk to Destruction. Destruction talks about, hey, there's a reason why I left all this and you can too. And then he just pieces out into who knows where. And then Dream has to go back and do the final thing that he promised his son he would do, which is to kill his son. And that really takes us to the end of the story. Um, so I think like the, the two big events here really are the, the dinner with destruction and then having to go back and kill his son. And, um, you know, I, I kind of touched on this earlier, but I think that the dinner with destruction is really what keys in on this. You get to decide for yourself what your life is going to be. And that is really the message that he's putting out there and that everything that everyone else thinks you're supposed to be, you don't need to be it. It's you can just decide to embrace that or not embrace it. And the world's going to go on just the same either way. Yeah. yeah, And that's the, the different stories we saw throughout the lawyer guy, the dancer, like with all of them, that's what they did is they, they decided what their life was going to be. And I think that um, the kind of less stated part of the story is it's it's easy to, well, maybe not easy, but it's it's easy to be drawn to living our life in a way that other people are going to approve of. You know, like if we're not exciting, if we're not burning as bright as we can, then people, you know, just think that you're not doing what you should do. But you see these different characters throughout it that realize that burning their brightest doesn't mean they're they're living how they want to live and i mean destruction is a great example that like all throughout he's doing these kind of mundane things i'm gonna write bad poetry i'm gonna paint a bad painting i'm gonna cook food you know all these different things where he's trying to express himself artistically but they're mundane you know they're they're way below what his life was like as far as excitement goes when he was living out his purpose as destruction and then when he's meeting with you know his brother and sister there he tells them like the, the function I was serving is that function is going to be there regardless. And I'm just not going to do it anymore. And I think we kind of saw that with dream. Like people kept dreaming when he was captive. The only real problem with that is that he, I think with dream, he wrapped up so much of the control in dreaming into his own person that he didn't just let it go and be its own thing he he kept such a a tight grip on everything that when he wasn't there that's why it it spiraled out of control but if he had just kind of like decided yeah i'm I'm just going to kind of let let the dreaming be its own thing and not have to basically micromanage every little bit of it that then you know things would have been fine with him gone and yeah, and plus putting his power too much into potent things, when people were able to to steal those things, it gave individuals more control than they had the restraint to use. And that was a, that was a big part of the problem when, when he wasn't in position, is you had these individuals mm-hmm. that were disrupting the, the balance of power with things, whereas he 
you know, for all of his faults, he was very dedicated to creating the right balance with things. And I think that, you know, through all this, like what you were getting at, sorry for, if I'm stepping on your toes here is, uh, letting things progress naturally creates that balance. And it's when people try to seize power or think they know better that the balance gets out of whack. I guess it's more, I'm, I'm thinking about when, when you have somebody exerting such tight control over something and then when that control is removed, then it hasn't learned to work on its own. You know, it's like if you have a micromanager at work who is telling you how to do every single little thing, even if it's different than you would naturally do it, when that's gone, things may be hectic and chaotic for a while as yeah. people start to think, oh, well, I can figure out how to manage myself. Um that's kind of what it, it it has seemed like to me is that he's he basically he wrapped up so much into himself and i think yeah destruction is telling him dude you can just walk away from this like i did and it was no big deal i think that dream isn't quite ready for that message i think he probably he, he may even want to but he still feels like the weight of his duty to keep acting as the Lord of the dreams. Yeah. Um, you know, one thing I, I do want to say, just like kind of flipping through this and we've kind of breezed through this, but for me, a lot of this journey, like the, them traveling to destiny's garden and then figuring out who can, um, who the Oracle is and then traveling to the Island and encountering the guards and all that, and then moving off to destruction's house and them eating dinner. The way the story is told, I, I really love the art. I think that it is, it just captures this, this, I don't know, a certain feeling to the story that's hard to put into words, but I just, I just kind of wanted to um, acknowledge just how uh, much I, I love the art and the how well this journey that they go on is told through the art. Yeah, that's one of the things that I really love about this, and it's you know, kind of not as plot-heavy, so it's uh, easy to miss, but I, I want to make sure I, I get that in there. One thing that struck me through the story, too, is oftentimes, especially like close-ups of people's faces, uh, it felt very Barry Windsor Smith-ish hmm. in the way the faces are drawn. Uh, not exactly like it, but it, it hasn't struck me that way before, but it struck me a lot through that, that a lot of a lot of the, the way people's faces were drawn struck me more like how Barry Windsor Smith does his art. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I, I hadn't really pieced that together but I can kind of see it. It's like a, a much looser, sketchier Barry Windsor Smith. Yeah. So, and then this ends with Morpheus going and killing Orpheus and finally giving him peace. Uh, Cause he was basically, he was damned to live forever, even though his head was ripped off his body. And that's what, what he's been doing for the last like, 2,000, 3,000 years or so. And I can't specifically remember. No, it was it was in an earlier story when 
Desire is talking about how they want to get Sandman to spill family blood, which would bring the kindly ones down on his head. Basically, like, spilling family blood is an unforgivable crime for these these people. And I think that Sandman, Morpheus, knows this, and he knows what he is risking by doing this, but he's deciding to do it anyway, which I think is, again, another sign of growth of him deciding, well, I'm going to not just live by the rules and regulations that supposedly guide us and do what is best for, you know, for, for my son. And I think that that is a moment of growth and change for him. Yeah, I agree. I don't think I have too much more to say about this. All right, cool. Well, yeah, I, I feel like somehow we both talked really thoroughly, but also just touched the surface of this one in a weird way. And I, I think we could have probably spent three hours on this kind of going beat by beat every little bit and really extracting a lot of juicy nuggets out of every single moment. Uh, I th- you know, there's like whole issues that we just kind of breezed over in terms of like what happens in them. Uh, but yeah, I think that this really remains just probably my favorite Sandman story. So I am, I'm happy we talked about this one. Also, this takes us to the two-thirds point, because we talked about issue 50 in when we were talking about the Distant Mirrors stories, so that takes us through 50 of the 75 Sandman issues. So we are officially now two-thirds of the way through. This also ends the third of the five hardcovers that collect it all. Mm, okay, this is still in the middle of the fourth, or the, or the middle of the third of the four hardcovers that collect it for me. Yeah. Yeah. So next up, we get a bunch of short stories with the World's End um, stories, which is kind of a interesting and really unique set of uh, one-shot stories. So that, that'll be another fun one to talk about. Awesome. All right. Well, that's going to wrap up this 99th episode. You know where to find us probably by now. My friend Paul here is on Twitter at Who's Paul. I'm on Twitter at Bad Deacon. And if you found this episode, you know where to find more. So we have talked about all the past Sandman stories in addition to this one. And most of the time we just talk about random crap. So let's uh, let's go enjoy some random crap, Paul. <laughs> it just dawned on me that on Father's Day we talked about a story about a father murdering his son. Yeah, okay. <laughs> You're right. We did. Yeah, happy Father's Day, everyone. And be a better father than Morpheus. (laughs) Be a better anything than Morpheus. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) All right. Bye. Bye.